Chapter 1 of The Young Carthaginian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded for you by Stephen Gibbons. The Young Carthaginian. A Story of the Times of Hannibal by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. The Camp in the Desert. It is afternoon, but the sun's rays still pour down with great power upon rock and sand. How great the heat has been at midday may be seen by the quivering of the air as it rises from the ground and blurs all distant objects. It is seen, too, in the attitudes and appearance of a large body of soldiers encamped in a grove. Their arms are thrown aside. The greater portion of their clothing has been dispensed with. Some lie stretched on the ground in slumber their faces protected from any chance rays which may find their way through the foliage above by little shelters composed of their clothing hung on two bows or javelins some lately awakened are sitting up or leaning against the trunks of the trees but scarce one has the energy to move the day has indeed been a hot one even for the southern edge of the libyan desert the cream-colored oxen stand with their heads down lazily whisking away with their tails the flies that torment them the horses standing near suffer more the lather stands on their sides their flanks heave and from time to time they stretch out their extended nostrils in the direction from which when the sun sinks a little lower the breeze will begin to blow the occupants of the grove are men of varied races and although there is no attempt at military order it is clear at once that they are divided into three parties. One is composed of men more swarthy than the others. They are lithe and active in figure, inured to hardship, accustomed to the burning sun. Light shields hang against the trees with bows and gaily painted quivers full of arrows, and near each man are three or four light, short javelins. They wear round caps of metal, with a band of the skin of the lion or other wild animal, in which are stuck feathers dyed with some bright color. They are naked to the waist, save for a light breastplate of brass. A cloth of bright colors is wound round their waist and drops to the knees, and they wear belts of leather embossed with brass plates. On their feet are sandals. They are the light-armed Numidian horse. Near them, are a party of men lighter in hue, taller and stouter in stature. Their garb is more irregular, their arms are bare, but they wear a sort of shirt, open at the neck and reaching to the knees, and confined to the waist by a leather strap, from which hangs a pouch of the same material. Their shirts, which are roughly made of flannel, are dyed a color which was originally a deep purple, but which has faded, under the heat of the sun, to a lilac. They are a company of Iberian slingers, enlisted among the tribes conquered in Spain by the Carthaginians. By them lie the heavy swords which they use in close quarters. The third body of men are more heavily armed. On the ground near the sleepers lie helmets and massive shields. They have tightly fitting jerkins of well-tanned leather. Their arms are spears and battle-axes. They are the heavy infantry of Carthage. Very various is their nationality. Fair-skinned Greeks lie side by side with swarthy Negroes from Nubia. Sardinia, the islands of the Aegean, Crete, and Egypt 
Libya, and Phoenicia are all represented there. They are recruited alike from the lower orders of the great city and from the tribes and people who own her sway. Near the large grove in which the troops are encamped is a smaller one. A space in the center has been cleared of trees, and in this a large tent has been erected. Around this numerous slaves are moving to and fro. A Roman cook, captured in a sea fight in which his master, a wealthy tribune, was killed, is watching three Greeks who are under his superintendence, preparing a repast. Some Libyan grooms are rubbing down the coats of four horses of the purest breed of the desert, while two Nubians are feeding with large flat cakes, three elephants who, chained by the leg to trees, stand rocking themselves from side to side. The exterior of the tent is made of coarse white canvas. This is thickly lined by fold after fold of a thin material, dyed a dark blue to keep out the heat of the sun, while the interior is hung with silk, purple, and white. The curtains at each end are looped back with a gold cord to allow a free passage of the air. A carpet from the looms of Syria covers the ground, and on it are spread four couches, on which, in a position half-sitting, half-reclining, repose the principal personages of the party. The elder of these men is a man some fifty years of age, of commanding figure, and features which express energy and resolution. His body is bare to the waist, save for a light short-sleeved tunic of the finest muslin, embroidered round the neck and sleeves with gold. A gold belt encircles his waist. Below it hangs a garment resembling the modern kilt, but reaching halfway between the knee and the ankle. It is dyed a rich purple and three bands of gold embroidery run around the lower edge. On his feet he wears sandals with broad leather lacings covered with gold. His toga, also of purple, heavily embroidered with gold, lies on the couch beside him. From one of the poles of the tent hang his arms, a short, heavy sword with a handle of solid gold in a scabbard encrusted with the same metal, and a baldric covered with plates of gold beautifully worked and lined with the softest leather, by which it is suspended over his shoulder. Two of his companions are young men of three or four and twenty, both fair like himself, with features of almost Greek regularity of outline. Their dress is similar to his in fashion, but the colors are gayer. The fourth member of the party is a lad of some fifteen years old. His figure, which is naked to the waist, is of a pure Grecian model, the muscles showing up clearly beneath the skin, testify to hard exercise and a life of activity. Powerful as Carthage was, the events of the last few years had shown that a life and death struggle with her great rival in Italy was approaching. For many years she had been a conquering nation. Her aristocracy were soldiers as well as traders, ready at once to embark on the most distant and adventurous voyages, to lead the troops of Carthage on toilsome expeditions against insurgent tribes of Numidia and Libya, or to launch their trememes to engage the fleets of Rome. The severe checks which they had lately suffered at the hands of the newly formed Roman navy, and the certainty that ere long a tremendous struggle between the two powers must take place, had redoubled the military ardor of the nobles. Their training to arms began from their very childhood, and the sons of the noblest houses were taught, at the earliest age, the use of arms and the endurance of fatigue and hardship. Malchus, the son of Hamilcar, the leader of the expedition in the desert, 
had been, from his early childhood, trained by his father in the use of arms. When he was ten years old, Hamilcar had taken him with him on a campaign in Spain. There, by a rigorous training, he had learned to endure cold and hardships. In the depth of winter, his father had made him pass the nights uncovered and almost without clothing in the cold. He had bathed in the icy water of the torrents from the snow-clad hills, and had been forced to keep up with the rapid march of the light-armed troops in pursuit of the Iberians. He was taught to endure long abstinence from food, and to bear pain without flinching, to be cheerful under the greatest hardships, to wear a smiling face when even veteran soldiers were worn out and disheartened. It is incumbent upon us, the rulers and aristocracy of this great city, my son, to show ourselves superior to the common herd. They must recognize that we are not only richer and of better blood, but that we are stronger, wiser, and more courageous than they. So only can we expect them to obey us and to make the sacrifices which war entails upon them. It is not enough that we are of pure Phoenician blood, that we come of the most enterprising race the world has ever seen, while they are but a mixed breed of many people who have either submitted to our rule or have been enslaved by us. This was well enough in the early days of the colony, when it was Phoenician arms alone that won our battles and subdued our rivals. In our days we are few and the populace are many. Our armies are composed not of Phoenicians, but of the races conquered by us, Libya and Numidia, Sicily, Sardinia, and Spain, all in turn conquered by us, now furnish us with troops. Carthage is a mighty city, but it is no longer a city of Phoenicians. We form but a small proportion of the population. It is true that all power rests in our hands, that from our ranks the Senate is chosen, the army officered, and the laws administered, but the expenses of the state are vast. The conquered people fret under the heavy tributes, which they have to pay, and the vile populace murmurs at the taxes. In Italy, Rome looms greater and more powerful year by year. Her people are hardy and trained to arms, and some day the struggle between us and her will have to be fought out to the death. Therefore, my son, it behooves us to use every effort to make ourselves worthy of our position. Set before yourself the example of your cousin Hannibal, who, young as he is, is already viewed as the greatest man in Carthage. Grudge no hardship or suffering to harden your frame and strengthen your arms. Some day you too may lead armies in the field, and believe me, they will follow you all the better and more cheerfully if they know that in strength and endurance, as well as in position, their commander is the foremost man in his army. Malchus had been an apt pupil, and had done justice to the pains which his father had bestowed upon him, and to the training he had undergone. He could wield the arms of a man, could swim the coldest river, endure hardship and want of food, traverse long distances at the top of his speed, could throw a javelin with unerring aim, and send an arrow to the mark as truly as the best of Libyan archers. The sun is going down fast, father, the lad said. The shadows are lengthening and the heat is declining. We have only your word for the decline of the heat, Malchus, one of the younger men laughed. I feel hotter than ever. 
This is the fifteenth time that you've been to the door of the tent during the last half hour. Your restlessness is enough to give one the fever. I believe that you are just as eager as I am, Adderbal, the boy replied, laughing. It is your first lion hunt as well as mine, and I am sure you are longing to see whether the assault of the king of beasts is more trying to the nerves than that of the Iberian tribesmen. I am looking forward to it, Malchus. Certainly, the young man replied. But as I know the lions will not quit their coverts until after nightfall, and as no efforts on my part will hasten the approach of that hour, I am well content to lie quiet and to keep myself as cool as may be. Your cousin is right, the general said, and impatience is a fault, Malchus. We must make allowances for your impatience on the present occasion, for the lion is a foe not to be despised, and he is truly as formidable an antagonist when brought to bay as the Iberians on the banks of the Ebro, far more so than the revolted tribesmen we've been hunting for the past three weeks. Giscon says nothing, Adderbal remarked. He has a soul above even the hunting of lions. I warrant that during the five hours we've been reclining here, his thoughts have never once turned towards the hunt we are going to have tonight. That is true enough, Giscon said, speaking for the first time. I own that my thoughts have been of Carthage, and of the troubles that threaten her owing to the corruption and misgovernment which are sapping her strength. It would best not to think too much on that subject, Giscon, the general said. Still better not to speak of it. You know that I lament, as you do, the misgovernment of Carthage, and mourn for the disasters which have been brought upon her by it. But the subject is a dangerous one. The council have spies everywhere, and to be denounced as one hostile to the established state of things is to be lost. I know the danger young man said passionately. I know that hitherto all who have ventured to raise their voices against the authority of these tyrants have died by torture. That murmuring has been stamped out in blood, yet with a danger ten times as great. And the speaker had risen now from his couch and was walking up and down the tent. I could not keep silent. What have our tyrants brought us to? Their extravagance, their corruption, have wasted the public funds and have paralyzed our arms. Sicily and Sardinia have been lost. Our allies in Africa have been goaded by their exactions again and again into rebellion. And Carthage has more than once lately been obliged to fight hard for her very existence. The lower classes in the city are utterly disaffected. Their earnings are wrung from them by the tax gatherers. Justice is denied them by the judges, who are the mere creatures of the Committee of Five. The Suffets are mere puppets in their hands. Our vessels lie unmanned in our harbors because the funds which should pay the sailors are appropriated by our tyrants to their own purposes. How can a Carthaginian who loves his country remain silent? All you say is true, Giscon, the general said gravely. Though I should be pressed to death were it whispered in Carthage that I said so, but at present we can do nothing. Had the great Hamilcar Barca lived, I believe that he would have set himself to work clear out this Orgean stable, a task greater than that accomplished by our great hero, the demigod Hercules. But no less a hand can accomplish it. You know how very attempt at revolt has failed, how terrible a vengeance fell on Matho and the mercenaries, how the downtrodden tribes have again and again, when victory seemed in their hands, been crushed into the dust. No, Giscon, 
we must suffer the terrible ills which you speak of until some hero arises, some hero whose victories will bind not only the army to him, but will cause all the common people of Carthage, all her allies and tributaries, to look upon him as their leader and deliverer. I have hopes, great hopes, that such a hero may be found in my nephew, Hannibal, who seems to possess all the genius, the wisdom, and the talent of his father. Should the dream which he cherished, and of which I was but now speaking to you, that of leading a Carthaginian army across the Ebro, over the Apennines, through the plains of Lower Gaul, and over the Alps into Italy, there to give battle to the cohorts of Rome on their own ground, should this dream be verified, I say? should success attend him and rome be humbled to the dust then hannibal would be in a position to become the dictator of carthage to overthrow the corrupt council to destroy the tyranny misnamed a republic and to establish a monarchy of which he should be the first sovereign and under which carthage again the queen of the world should be worthy of herself and her people and now let us speak of it no more the very wolves have ears, and I doubt not but even among my attendants there are men who are spies in the pay of the council. I see and lament as much as any man the ruin of my country. But until I see a fair hope of deliverance, I am content to do the best I can against her enemies, to fight her battles as a simple soldier. There was silence in the tent. Malchus had thrown himself down on his couch, and for a time forgot even the approaching lion-hunt in the conversation to which he had listened. The government of Carthage was indeed detestable, and was the chief cause both of the misfortunes which had befallen her in the past, and of the disasters which were in the future to be hers. The scheme of government was not in itself bad, and in earlier and simpler times had acted well. Originally it had consisted of three estates, which answered to the king lords and commons at the head of affairs were two suffets chosen for life below them was the senate a very numerous body comprising all the aristocracy about carthage below this was the democracy the great mass of the people whose vote was necessary to ratify any law passed by the senate in time however all authority passed from the suffets the general body of the senate and the democracy into the hands of a committee of the senate one hundred in number who were called the council, the real power being invested in the hands of an inner council, consisting of from twenty to thirty of the members. The deliberations of this body were secret, their power absolute. They were masters of the life and property of every man in Carthage, as afterwards were the council of ten in the Republic of Venice. For a man to be denounced by his secret enemy, to them as being hostile to their authority was to ensure his destruction and the confiscation of his property the council of a hundred was divided into twenty subcommittees each containing five members each of these committees was charged with the control of a department the army the navy the finances the roads communications agriculture religion and the relations with the various subject tribes the more important departments being entirely in the hands of the members of the inner council of thirty. The judges were a hundred in number. These were appointed by the council and were ever ready to carry out their behest. Consequently, justice in Carthage was a mockery. Interest and intrigue were paramount in the law courts. As in every department of state, every prominent citizen, every successful general, every man who seemed likely by his ability or his wealth, to become a popular personage with the masses, fell under the ban of the council, and sooner or later was certain to be disgraced. The resources of the state were devoted not to the needs of the country, 
but to the aggrandizement and enriching of the members of the committee. Heavy as were the imposts which were laid upon the tributary peoples of Africa for the purposes of the state, enormous burdens were added by the tax-gatherers to satisfy the cupidity of their patrons and the council. Under such circumstances, it was not to be wondered at that Carthage, decaying, corrupt, ill-governed, had suffered terrible reverses at the hands of her young and energetic rival, Rome, who was herself, some day, when she attained the apex of her power, to suffer from the abuses no less flagrant and general than those which had sapped the strength of Carthage. With the impetuosity of youth, Malchus naturally inclined rather to the aspirations of his kinsman Giscon than to the more sober counsels of his father. He had burned with shame and anger as he heard the tale of the disasters which had befallen his country, because she had made money her god, had suffered her army and her navy to be regarded as secondary objects, and had permitted the command of the sea to be wrested from her by her wiser and more far-seeing rival. As evening closed in, the stir in the neighboring camp aroused Malchus from his thoughts, and the anticipation of the lion-hunt in which he was about to take part again became foremost. The camp was situated twenty days' march from Carthage at the foot of some hills in which lions and other beasts of prey were known to abound, and there was no doubt that they would be found that evening. The expedition had been dispatched under the command of Hamilcar to chastise a small tribe which had attacked and plundered some of the Carthaginian caravans on their way to Ethiopia, then a rich and prosperous country, wherein were many flourishing colonies which had been sent out by Carthage. The object of the expedition had been but partly successful. The lightly clad tribesmen had taken refuge far among the hills, and although by dint of long and fatiguing marches several parties had been surprised and slain, the main body had evaded all the efforts of the Carthaginian general. The expedition had arrived at its present camping place on the previous evening. During the night the deep roaring of lions had been heard continuously among the hills, and so bold and numerous were they that they had come down in such proximity to the camp that the troops had been obliged to rise and light great fires to scare them from making any attack upon the horses. The general had therefore consented, upon the entreaties of his nephew Atherbal and his son, to organize a hunt upon the following night. As soon as the sun set, the troops, who had already received their orders, fell into their ranks. The full moon rose as soon as the sun dipped below the horizon, and her light was ample for the object they had in view. The Numidian horse were to take their station on the plain, the infantry in two columns, a mile apart, were to enter the mountains, and having marched some distance, leaving detachments behind them, they were to move along the crest of the hills until they met. Then, forming a great semicircle, they were to light torches, which they had prepared during the day, and to advance towards the plain, shouting and dashing their arms, so as to drive all of the wild animals enclosed in the ark down into the plain. The general, with the two young officers and his son, and a party of fifty spearmen, were to be divided between the two groves in which the camps were pitched, which were opposite the center of the space, facing the line enclosed by the beaters. Behind the groves the Numidian horse was stationed, to give chase to such animals as might try to make their escape across the open plain. The general inspected the two bodies of infantry before they started, and repeated his instructions to the officers who commanded them, and enjoined them to march as noiselessly as possible until the semicircle was completed and the beat began in earnest. 
The troops were to be divided into groups of eight in order to be able to repel the attack of any beast which might try to break through the line. When the two columns had marched away right and left towards the hills, the attendants of the elephants and baggage animals were ordered to remove them into the center of the groves. The footmen who remained were divided into two parties of equal strength. The general with Malchus remained in the grove in which his tent was fixed with one of these parties, while Otherbal and Giscon with the others took up their station in the larger grove. Do you think the lions are sure to make for these groves? Malchus asked his father, as with a bundle of javelins lying by his side, his bow in his hand, and a quiver of arrows hung from his belt in readiness. He took his place at the edge of the trees. There can be no certainty of it, Malchus, but it seems likely that the lions, which when driven out of their refuges among the hills, will make for these groves, which will seem to offer them a shelter from their pursuers. The fires here will have informed them of our presence last night. But as all is still and dark now, they may suppose that the groves are deserted. In any case, our horses are in readiness among the trees close at hand, and if the lions take to the plains, we must mount and join the Numidians in the chase. I would rather meet them here on foot, father. Yes, there is more excitement, because there is more danger in it, Malchus. But I can tell you the attack of a wounded lion is no joke, even for a party of twenty-five well-armed men. Their force and fury are prodigious, and they will throw themselves fearlessly upon a clump of spears in order to reach their enemies. One blow from their paws is certain death. Be careful, therefore, Malchus. Stir not from my side, and remember that there is a vast difference between rashness and bravery. End of chapter 1. Recorded by Stephen Gibbons.